Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're back in the 11th chapter of Paul's first, which, as I've told you before, is really a second letter to the Corinthians. He has responded to a letter that they've written to him after he's written them a letter, and this is really 2 Corinthians then in that sense. And we have been focusing, as we've looked um, through this book, at all the intricate problems in the church in Corinth. This was... This was not a, a healthy church. You know, people always talk about, let's get back to the first century. Let's go have a house church and get back to apostolic Christianity. And I want to say, have you read 1 Corinthians? Have you read Galatians? Have you read the New Testament? <laughs> there are loads of problems. And Paul addresses those problems. And God has graciously given us this book to instruct us in all of our various problems, out of a church that had various problems. And so this morning we are in 1 Corinthians 11 and we're moving into that uh, portion that deals specifically with the issue of uh, division during the Lord's Supper, wrong motives during the Lord's Supper, and all of the teaching about the Lord's Supper. Um, interestingly, I'll just say here by way of preface that this is most likely the earliest uh, instruction written about the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, written before the four Gospels. Um, almost all scholars agree that Corinthians was written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so it's interesting. This is the first um, written revelation about the Lord's Supper in the New Testament era, and you'll see how instructive it is, I think, this morning. And so we're in 1 Corinthians 11. We're looking at verses 17, and let's read down to the end of the chapter, verse 34. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen to 34. And before we do, let's pray and ask our God to strengthen both the one that preaches and those that hear this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. We're thankful that you give us the scriptures. We, th- we are thankful that you have not hidden your word from us, but that you have declared it plainly and in its fullest sense that you have given us the whole counsel of God as it centers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are thankful that we can come this morning and sit and be instructed. And so, our God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts. We pray as we hear your word and then as we come to the table, that you would instruct us, that we would be the better for gathering together. We pray, our God, that you would meet with us, that we would know even your felt presence, that you would send times of refreshment, that there would be deep repentance, and that there would be um, an increase of faith in our hearts towards you through your, your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that he would be exalted, that we would understand more that this is his table, and that it points to him and his sufferings, that we would be built up in the knowledge of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 17, the Apostle Paul there writes these words, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part... I believe it, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those that have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I know it's true in my own life, and I wonder if in your life you have known something of the grief of sitting at a dinner party, maybe with relatives, maybe with friends, and there being tension and there being strife and there being bitterness. Maybe somebody says something sharp to a spouse and then the spouse uh, throws something sharp back and then everything gets weird and everybody gets quiet and nobody wants to be there. And you go home and you turn to your husband or you turn to your wife and you say, why did we go there? That was horrible. We are worse off for going and having dinner. And, and sadly, that so often happens with families. At Thanksgiving and Christmas, that's why we pray. When you go to be with families, we pray that there's peace and that there's real table fellowship and that people don't bring, bring up issues and that there's not selfishness and division and strife. There's a proverb that says it's better to eat a little dish of herbs where peace is than to have a meal and a big fatted calf where there's strife. And it's interesting because that, I think, serves as a helpful analogy on an everyday level or a everyone's life level of what was happening in Corinth at the greater meal at the Lord's Supper. Now, we've already seen how many problems the Corinthian church has had. At the beginning of this book, the very first problem that Paul raised was that this church was a divided church, that some said, I'm of Paul, some I'm of Apollos, some I'm of Peter, some I'm of Christ. We're, we're, we don't follow these men. We just follow the Jesus and his earthly teaching. And so Paul had dealt with them, and he had dealt with them on this issue. He had said that at the heart of the problem of the Corinthians was a lack of seeing their need for the crucified Christ. That what lay at the heart of their problem, at the deepest epicenter of their problem, was not that they wanted to follow this teacher or that teacher. It was not that they wanted to take each other to court. It was not that they wanted to commit sexual immorality. It was not all those other issues we've looked at. Those are symptoms. The issue was that they didn't see their need for a crucified Savior. And Paul dealt with that at the very beginning of this letter. He said, was was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Is Christ divided? And so the greatest uh, symptoms in any church that we now see here in the first century in Corinth, that at the foundation of those symptoms was a lack of seeing their need for the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And so it's natural as Paul deals with all these issues and he takes them one at a time, that as he comes now to consider the, the problems in their corporate fellowships, and we saw last week that there were women outside of this church saying, women, you can teach men, and women, you can do anything a man can do in church. And Paul's saying, no, you cannot. No, you cannot. Jesus was submissive to his father. 
Wives are submissive to their husbands. Very clearly, Paul's saying there's an order, there's a hierarchy, and he's dealing in the corporate fellowship now. Now he's dealing with problems in the life of the corporate gathering, the people of God coming together supposedly to worship God, and what they're really doing is coming to please themselves. Now, I think that's helpful for us in the 21st century because person after person after person that I meet tell me why they pick a church, and I would say 9 out of 10 people that I meet pick a church for selfish reasons. Well, I like the music better here. Well, I like this better here. Well, I like this better here. And I never hear them say, I need Jesus, and this church preaches Jesus faithfully. That's why you join a church. That's why you're united to other people. It's not your cultural preferences. It's not all of those things. In fact, there's a great danger for us in America where we have a consumer mindset, where all of these things are put before us, and we get to choose what restaurant we want to eat at, and we get to do this, and we get to do that, and then we, we inject that into why we pick a church. And what we're doing is the exact same thing that the Corinthians were doing here that Paul is correcting. And so we're going to see four things this morning as we look at this issue in Corinth and as Paul's dealing with it. We're going to see first a word of rebuke, and you'll see that there in verses 17 through 20. He'll set out the word of rebuke, and then there's the words of institution in 23 and following, and then Paul will give a word of warning in 27 to 29, and then finally a word of exhortation, a word of rebuke, words of institution, a word of warning, and then finally a word of exhortation. We'll notice there that Paul, as he comes into this section now, as he transitions out of uh, the man-woman relationship and who gets to teach in the church and, and the, the natural and the created order of things and how God has so ordered that in verse 17 now says to them, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse now there's a contrast paul had actually commended them in verse two for the first time in the letter from the very preface of the letter now for the first time he had commended them and said i commend you because they weren't practicing uh female teachers in the church it was the one thing they weren't doing but they were on the brink of doing it now he says i don't commend you Because here's another problem in the life of the church. He says, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, I think that it would be helpful for us to consider this morning, why do we go to church? Why why go to church? Why every Sunday do we gather together and worship together? You know, I think a lot of people, when they ask that question, start to feel burdened by the redundancy every Sunday. Got to go to church. Got to get up and go to church. Um, I had a uh, professor, Joel Beakey, who said to us um, in class once that every Lord's Day he would wake his children and he would say to them, do you know what today is? And they'd say the best day of the week that he would instill in them that the Lord's Day is the best day of the week. And what Joel Beakey was doing was teaching his children that when they gather together with the saints, it ought to be for the better. They ought to come out and have gained a benefit and a blessing from having gathered together with the saints. Listen to what John Calvin says. He says, if we consider what is transacted in the church, there ought to be, there ought never to be a coming together without some fruit. There, in the church, the doctrine of God is listened to, prayers are offered, the sacraments are administered, the fruit of the word is when confidence in God and fear of him are increased in us, when progress is made in holiness of life, when we put off more and more of the old man, when we advance in newness of life, 
then there is fruit. The sacraments have a tendency to exercise us in piety and love. The prayers ought to be useful in promoting all of these things. In addition to this, the Lord works efficaciously by his spirit because he wills not that his ordinances should be in vain. You see, what Calvin's saying is that every part of the worship service ought to be for your growth and betterment. And that when you leave here, you ought to leave in a greater measure of spiritual health than when you came. Now, sadly, many of us have gone to churches that were not faithful in the ministry of the word. They were not faithful in administering the ordinances. They were not faithful in preaching Christ. And many times we've been to churches and left and have been worse off because it was not what the church ought to be doing in gathering together as the church. And I love what Calvin says because what he's saying is that God is so wise and God has so ordered things that God knows it is best for you that this is the best place you could be throughout your entire week. Gathering together with the saints ought to be the best. It ought to be the best place you could find yourself throughout your entire week. I was thinking this week of ridiculous things I used to get excited about as a kid. Going to a roller skating place in a redneck town with redneck music playing. And how excited I was to go there. And then I think about going to church. Am I excited? Do I come expecting fruit and blessing and benefit? Do I expect to leave for the better? Well, Paul says, when you gather together, the Corinthians, you're gathering not for the better, but for the worse. That they were actually worse off for gathering. Now, there's there's a word there, I think, from the Lord. There's a word to us that it's actually possible for you to go through the motions And it's actually possible for you to go through the rituals and actually be worse off for it because your heart's not right. That you can actually be worse off. You go to church and somebody says some sharp word to you and then you go home all bitter. You go to church because you're expecting something to go. You want it to go and it's not quite what you want and so you go home all bitter. And you know, I think even in healthy churches, this is a danger. And we have to be on guard. We have to be on guard against it. And you know, Paul is going to tell us that that in this warning, that the problem, again, the problem, the deep heart issue was not that they were coming together and eating and drinking in front of other people. That was the symptom. The problem was that they didn't feel their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't feel their need. Listen to this. William Still says, when we abandon that sweet heart melting nearness to the crucified Lord, we will misuse his ordinances to our own hurt. When we abandon that sweet heartfelt heart-melting nearness to the crucified Lord, we will suffer hurt when we gather together as a congregation. And I think what Paul is saying is that this church had abandoned that sweet, heart-melting devotion to the Lord Jesus and to his gospel. And notice what Paul says. He actually deals in verse 18 with the first part of the problem, and that goes back to chapter 1. He says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions. I'm not going to go over that, but we know the church was divided. They were meeting in separate assemblies. They were meeting in different avenues, and they were saying, we don't want to meet with these people over here because we like this guy, and we follow this guy's teaching. And if they had had uh, gospel coalition and sermon audio, it would be a mess. It would be a mess. They'd be listening to all kinds of people, and they'd be broken into all kinds of sex and all kinds of divisions. Now, let me say this. Paul is not saying denominations are sinful. Surprise, surprise. Paul is not saying that, because even when somebody says we're non-denominational, they're denominating themselves. They are. Get a phone book out. 
and look at all the denominations, and non-denominational is a denomination. Everyone denominates themselves by what they believe. Now, Christians ought to have unity. They ought to be denominated in the Lord Jesus, but the Lord Jesus of the scriptures and the doctrines about him. And notice what Paul says. Very interesting, very important. Paul says in verse 19, he says in 18, in part, I believe it. That's sort of Paul's sarcasm. He, he really believes it. He knows that these people are divided. He doesn't have a problem believing that. And then he says in verse 19, for there must be factions. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You see, what Paul is not doing is saying everybody's in and we're just all rocking our way to heaven no matter what we believe, no matter what we do, unity at all costs, unity at all expense. Paul is not saying that. Paul actually says, listen, there must be factions. There must be divisions so that those who are approved and sincere, who hold to the doctrine of Jesus in sincerity, who love his word, who love his people would be approved. And that's important because today there is so much of a tendency to say this is divisive and that's divisive when in reality it's not divisive. We welcome anyone into our church. It doesn't matter what your background is. You can come and worship at New Covenant. When Chick-fil-A and the whole thing was going down, I, I wrote, you know, homosexuals are welcome to come and to sit in our fellowship, but you can't bring Chick-fil-A into the building. But, but you're welcome. All sorts of people are welcome into this fellowship. Now, to be a member of a local church, you have to be repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus. But we don't exclude people because of denominational background or any of that. We want people to hear the true preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want men and women to be brought to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. And so it would be a categorical mistake to say, if you are denominated, you are schismatic. In heaven, there's not going to be any more denominations. I know that. I anticipate that. I long for that. But here on earth, Paul says there have to be divisions so that those who are approved, those that are genuine, would be approved. Now think about this. Think about the Reformation. If, if Martin Luther had not had a conscience bound to the scriptures, had not stood against all the perversions of the Roman Catholic Church, had not stood almost single-handedly before councils and bishops and archbishops and took a stand and said that the word of God is what binds my conscience alone and that a man is justified by faith alone— Apart from anything that he does, had he not done that, we would not have gospel-centered churches. God raised him up to be approved. Now, it would have been wonderful if the Roman Catholic Church could have been reformed. It would have been ideal. It would have been great. Everybody would have been happy, I guess. But God says God works in different ways. When denominations start going south, God raises up new denominations. Our denomination broke from a liberal Presbyterian denomination. Lots of Presbyterian churches have. Baptist churches that are faithful to the gospel broke away from Baptist churches that were becoming liberal. That is how God works. And it's not promoting schism. It's promoting sincerity and truth. And so Paul says that they were coming together and there were divisions. And then even in warning about these divisions, he's saying there's some that you ought to be divided from because their hearts are not right and they won't be right and they are not coming together for the right reasons. And then notice what Paul says. He sets out the second problem, which is the major problem. When you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead of another on his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God or humiliate those that have nothing? Now, I think we have to understand something before looking at Paul's 
rebuke here specifically, and that is that the Lord's Supper in the first century would have been more like a feast, more like a meal, a communal meal. You know, Jude and Second Peter, Peter and Second Peter talk about love feast, that these would have been massive feasts where all of the believers would come together and they would be filled on a meal and it would be a sacramental meal and it would be the Lord's Supper in all of its richness and fullness and it would have been something akin to the Passover in the Old Testament but now in the New without a bloody lamb because the blood has been shed and they would come together and it would be an expression of their mutual fellowship and union in Jesus Christ. But Paul says when you come together, you don't wait for other people. Maybe it was the poor slaves in this day that couldn't get out of their duties in time to get there on time. And so the wealthy people who sort of oversaw the feast, they would go and they wouldn't wait and they would eat and they would have their social societies. And what they had done, what they had done is they had turned the church into a personal social uh, society to satisfy their selfish desires. It was just like every other part of their life. It exists to make me happy and to fulfill my need for social, social fellowship and friendship. And this is where I find my social society and fellowship. And it had nothing to do with Jesus. Because if it had do, to do with Jesus, they would have waited for everyone who called in the name of the Lord Jesus to come and to eat the meal that pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus. Had it been about Christ, they would have waited now, we have a custom, and I don't know if it's just in the South. And it surprised me because growing up in the North, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't taught to observe this, but, um, and I'm learning to observe this, but in the South, when people come and sit down in a meal, everybody waits for everybody. And then they wait for one of the women to eat first, and all the women are like, should I be the one, or maybe she should go? And sometimes it's like, all right, we can eat. Um, but it is, a, it is a cultural practice of waiting, and what it denotes is that there is a communal aspect of fellowship happening around that table, and that that meal, the, the actual personal individual eating is not the most important thing, but the communal aspect of eating that meal together in union and in fellowship for the benefit of the social fellowship that you have at that table. The Lord's Supper was meant to be a communal meal. The Lord's Supper was meant to be given not just to individual believers, but to the corporate body of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is the foundation of the Christian church. It is foundational in the sense that what it shows is that the Christian church itself is a covenant community eating a covenant meal, feeding on the Lord Jesus Christ, feeding with one another, saying, I need the same thing as this person here. And think how marvelous this is, that the rich and the poor need the same thing. Nowhere else in society do you find the rich and the poor getting the same meal week after week after week than in the Lord's Supper because spiritually there is no rich and poor socioeconomically. In the spiritual realm, there is no rich and poor. We are all like an unclean thing. We all need the sacrifice of Jesus. We all need the same thing. We all need reconciliation through the blood. And so God's given us a communal meal to show that we together are partaking together of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Corinthians came. They got drunk. It was wine. Just as an aside, they got drunk. They were hungry. 
Paul says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? What you're doing, Paul was basically saying what they were doing was not having the Lord's Supper. They could call it the Lord's Supper. They could act like it was the Lord's Supper. It was not the Lord's Supper. Paul basically said, what you're doing, you should be doing at home. Do you not have houses to do that in? What you're doing is perverting the supper by not coming and recognizing the communal aspect. Notice what Paul actually says. The problem is so big. Look in verse 22. The problem is so great that Paul says, do you despise the church of God? Think about that. Something like a misuse of the Lord's Supper and an improper heart posture before God and a a failure to see your need for Christ while coming and coming selfishly is actually a despising of the church of God. It's actually to say, I don't care about any of these people in here. I care about myself and what I get out of it. And so Paul says, do you not despise the church of God and humiliate those that have nothing? He says, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So secondly, notice in verse 23, now Paul transitions and he he gives what we call the institutions, the the words of institution of the Lord's Supper. And what's interesting about this, and I, I was meditating on this this week, is that while 1 Corinthians may have been the the third book written in the New Testament, it may not have been the first in chronological order, that the words that Paul writes here are the very first recorded words of the incarnate Christ. All the Bible is the word of Christ. We shouldn't have red letters and black letters. It's all all Jesus' word. But there are those words that the Lord Jesus spoke in his earthly ministry that are recorded for us in the Gospels. And if this book indeed came before the Gospels, the very first recorded spoken words of Jesus are, this is my body given for you in the New Testament. That is marvelous. This is my body given for you. And that what Paul does is Paul takes everything that the Corinthians might be interested in and he says the most important thing, the thing that makes the church the church is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. The thing that makes the church the church. Nothing about the ethical teachings of Jesus. Can I say that reverently? Nothing about the ethical teachings of Jesus. Paul says the most central thing is the supper. You know, D.A. Carson very wisely notes that one of the reasons why we have these institutions and one of the reasons God did what he did in giving us the supper is because we have so many things going on in the life of the church. We're all so busy. We have so many things going on in our lives. Men and women work, raise children, take their kids to sporting events. In the church, you have all kinds of events. You have all kinds of programs. You have dinners that you have to get ready. You have outreaches that you do. You have setting up and breaking down in a church plant like this. We have to secure the building. We have to do all the advertising. We have to get signs together. We have to do a bulletin. We have to pick the music. We have to practice the music. And then on top of all that, I have to go to presbytery and session meetings and general assemblies and we busy ourselves so much that it would be very easy to forget what the most important thing is. And so God says, here's a table. And Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And if we didn't have that, I imagine that we would forget very easily We'd forget very easily what is that most central thing. I marvel that God's given us two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and both point to the death of Jesus. That it is of such supreme and everlasting importance that God only gave us two sacraments and they point to the same person and his saving work. 
And so the Apostle Paul gives them the words of institution and whether Paul received this in a vision or in Arabia in the desert, Jesus had taught him what happened that night he was betrayed. And he tells us in those two parts, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Interesting. We have a big debate going on in our denomination. I don't understand why. Where some people want to put the two back together. It's called intinction. Um, there's a reason why the bread and the wine are separate. The blood of Jesus was separated from his body. The blood was separated. It is a symbolic act saying he died. Putting it back in would ruin the symbol. Jesus gave us one sacrament and two symbols to show forth that as the sacrifice, just in the Old Testament, just like in the Old Testament, the sacrifice and the blood poured out and the life of the flesh was in the blood. So Jesus gives us this symbol that shows that the life of his flesh was in his blood. Have you ever thought about this, that Jesus carried around in his body for 33 years blood that kept him alive so that he could be offered as a sacrifice for your sin? He carried around for 33 years blood pumping through his heart and his veins so that it could be shed at the cross as a sacrifice for your sins. And so Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood given for you. It's interesting to note, too, in the language of the institution of the supper that Jesus is selflessly giving himself to undeserving sinners. That it is the greatest act of selflessness and sacrifice and servitude that the world has ever known. Jesus has loved his own that were in the world, and he loved them to the end, and he poured out his life unto death, and he gave his life as a sacrifice for sin, and he laid down his life willingly, the shepherd for the sheep, the most deserving for the most undeserving, and he did the greatest act of selfishness. And what did the Corinthians do? They took that symbol of the greatest act of selflessness and made it the greatest act of selfishness. And they said, no, we will celebrate this on our own with our friends. We will have our social society, and I like him, and I like her, and I like him, and we're just going to have it together. And we don't need to wait on the people that we don't like, the people that are socially awkward, the people that said something mean to me a few weeks ago, and I'm harboring bitterness. We don't need to wait on them. The greatest act of selflessness being abused and made into the greatest act of selfishness. I think Paul is intentionally when he says that Jesus gave the bread and said, this is my body for you, given for you. He is taking it back to what is the remedy of the problem. The remedy is to remember that Jesus gave himself for you. You know, that's the remedy to every problem in the church. I actually think it's very simple that Every problem we have in the church is either a problem with our hearts inwardly or our actions outwardly or our relationships. And every one of those problems is is remedied by our repenting of sin and believing that Jesus Christ was sacrificed for us. And every time we forget that, we will continue on in those problems because there's no power, there's no forgiveness, there's no cleansing, there's no motivation, there's no grace outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an infinite world of grace in Jesus. The cross is an infinite world of grace for you, for healing and for pardon. And so Paul reminds them 
of what Jesus did. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, this is remarkable. It ought to be impossible for you to come to the table and not remember Jesus. The symbols are explicit. They're clear. They're straightforward. The words of institution are clear and explicit and straightforward. Do this in remembrance of me. And so the heavenly bridegroom says to his bride, I want you to remember me. And in remembering me, you'll love one another. You'll wait for one another. You won't be divided with each other. In remembering me, everything that you need in the deepest recesses of your hearts will be given to you by me through my sufferings and through my resurrection. Now notice thirdly and and briefly that Paul sets out a word of warning. Though it should be impossible to forget the Lord Jesus, notice what he says in verse 27, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, if you lived in the 17th century, you would probably be subject to abuse on this, on this passage right here, um, unworthy partaking. What does it mean to be a worthy partaker? There are volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes written. And sometimes some of the men that you'll read on this passage will make it seem almost like a spiritual perfectionism is what makes you qualified. The Bible is very clear that we are all unqualified in and of ourselves and that what qualifies us is Christ. Not our performance. We don't merit anything by our obedience. We don't make ourselves in a better standing with God by our obedience. Now, God is pleased when we obey and displeased when we disobey. But Jesus is who qualifies us. And seeing our need for him is what qualifies us. And so what Paul is saying, I think, in the context is that here was a church that was not seeing their need for Jesus. They were therefore unqualified when coming to the table. And because they were coming to the table not discerning the body and the blood of Jesus for their sins, they were incurring on themselves chastisement. They were backslidden Christians incurring on themselves chastisement for their sins so severe that I know it sounds strange to us, but some were sick and some were weak and some died. And what I think Paul is saying is that when you come to the table, this is not a a meaningless thing. This is not an empty thing. This is not something in in and of itself that has no ramifications. Either you will be eating for your spiritual betterness or you will be eating for your spiritual worsening. You will either be getting a blessing. Remember in chapter 10, Paul called it the cup of blessing that we bless. When you partake by faith of the cup, you ought to be receiving spiritual grace in Jesus Christ as you believe on him. But if you come and you're not discerning your need for Christ and you flippantly take the supper and you're not examining your heart, and notice that Paul very clearly in verse 28 says, let a person examine himself. Examine yourself to see whether you're trusting Jesus, whether you're repenting of sin. Look, I don't care if you committed the worst sin you've ever done this morning. I don't care if you've committed the worst sin you've ever done in your life or you think, probably done a lot more in your heart than you realize. Worst sin you've ever committed this morning in your entire life, if you repent and trust in Jesus again, you come to this table and you are worthily receiving. This table is for those that know they need a Savior. 
You will only worthily partake when you know you need a savior. You will unworthily partake when you think you're better than people and think that you don't need a savior. When you think you're deserving, when you think you don't need to be part of a fellowship and why do I have to go to church again and I guess I got to take the Lord's Supper, you are unworthily partaking. This table is for people that love and know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, there's judgment, but notice even in that judgment, and it's hard to understand, that there's a kindness of God. Notice in verse 31, if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged, but when we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. God would be unloving to you if he let you take up holy things like the Lord's Supper and to do it carelessly and thoughtlessly without any ramifications. Let me say this. If you went out and you know that you have $0 in your bank, which is usually what I have, and you're like, man, I need a new car, and you somehow put that on a credit card, you have a big line of credit somehow, and you put that car on that, on that credit card, there are going to be ramifications. You may have a new car, you may like driving around in it. You may like showing it off to your friends. You may like turning the music up real loud and racing other cars in that car. You will be in debt. There are consequences. In every level of the natural world, there are consequences. Why would we not think there would be consequences? There would not be consequences in something as serious as the table that the Lord Jesus spreads for his people. Why would we not think there would be consequences? Now, let me say this as we close. Finally, Paul says in verse 33, he gives this word of exhortation. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Some have mistakenly thought that a worthy partaking is just waiting for everybody. You know, we wait here. I say, let's hold the elements. We'll partake together. That was the symptom. It was not the heart issue. Let me read to you again what William Still said. When we abandon that sweet, heart-melting nearness to the crucified Lord, we will misuse his ordinances to our own hurt. That was the issue. The symptom was they were not waiting for one another. I want to read a poem as we close and as we prepare to come to the table. Charles Spurgeon wrote this hymn, only hymn I know of that he wrote. And it's a a communion hymn. It's called Amidst Us Our Beloved Stands. And Spurgeon said, Amidst us our beloved stands and bids us view his pierced hands. Points to the wounded feet and side, blessed emblems of the crucified. What food luxurious loads the board when at his table sits the Lord. The wine how rich, the bread how sweet, when Jesus deigns the guests to meet. If now with eyes defiled and dim we see the signs but see not him... O may his love the scales displace and bid us see him face to face. You see, as we partake together this morning, our common goal is to see the face of the crucified Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. When we partake, we are partaking together as people staring by faith into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so good to give us a meal to eat. We are hungry spiritually, Lord Jesus. We are, we are often spiritually malnourished, 
We have fed on the, the, the junk food of the world. We have fed on things that we thought would satisfy us. We have belittled the things that you have given us, Lord. And we pray as we come to the table this morning that, Father, you would give us your Holy Spirit to aid us in examining ourselves to see that we discern the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus for our sins. Give us brokenness. Give us repentance, Father. If there's sin in our lives that we've been harboring, may this morning be a time that we confess that freely to you and know that it's not in cleaning ourselves up that Christ receives us, but he receives us as filthy sinners who need a Savior. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would meet with us, that you enable us to feed together by faith and to love one another and to walk in love and to care for one another as members of the same body. Father, we pray that you would be present with us, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.